That's Joe Biden with an eye patch. Oh my God! Can we give it up to Dean Martin on the show that he is he's just killing it, it with thumbnail. He's getting he's, it. He's deep in thumbnail perfection right now. That's true. Like anyone that's listening to the show, watch the show for the Jean Bajlan thumbnail because the audio only thumbnails I do, they pale in comparison to what Bajlan is doing right now. You gotta use he his. I, well, it's it's too much to do and resizing. It's oh, you much. stop it. Oh, you stop it. Oh, oh you men. <laughs> Jason Miles, and welcome to our bi-monthly streams with good friends Matt and David over at Left Reckoning. Matt this week is on break and won't be joining us, but we have an informative show for you planned nonetheless. Also after the show, if you're a patron, we'll be going into the champagne room to take some calls on what you guys have to say about this primary season, your feelings on the wins and defeats, and where you think we go from here. Real quick, a couple of things before I bring in the fellas. If you haven't done it yet, please hit like, subscribe, and of course that notification bell so you're alerted whenever we go live. For those of you that are subscribers, thank you for your continued support. If you'd like to wear your support for the show's feature today, then let the people know with TIR merch. MT, can you pull up the merchandise for people to see? Can, they, can you show them the, the dope mouse pad with Pascal Robert smiling, please? The only time you're going to get a picture of Pascal Robert smiling. People think that he's mad during the show. It's just yeah, he refuses to smile on air for the people. He's like Black Dynamite. I am smiling. <laughs> Did you show him the mouse pad? Did you show him the mug? Also with Pascal's smiling face. Go to work. Here. With it, with a smiling black man. And uh, and Cuba. On your on your mug, and have people go, who the fuck are these people? <laughs> Please. Do it. Be different. Think different. Who was that? Was it an apple? Think different. All right. 
With the midterm elections in the rear view and some races and mail-in ballots still being counted, who was the real winner in this election? Were the pundits and polls correct? Did Dems get slaughtered like many had been predicting? In SF thought to be the bastion of progressive politics, it looks as if centrism was the victor. Has the blight of open-air drug markets and public homelessness defeated the progressive energy that was so thick in the air amid countrywide protests to defund or even abolish police? Mm -hmm. Is the idea of the transformative district attorney now out of vogue with the voting populace? From an article in the SF Chronicle. Tuesday's election capped off an unprecedented year at the polls in San Francisco. Two recalls in a special election to fill a vacant state assembly seat awarded Breed the power to appoint six officials who then ran for election for the first time to keep their seats. Breed's appointees who won or appeared likely to win Thursday included the district attorney, a community college board candidate, a city supervisor, and two school board candidates. A third appointed school board candidate held a close lead over another opponent. District attorney Brooke Jenkins declared victory Wednesday, leaning into her strong lead, although 100,000 votes were still left to be counted. Breed also supported eight ballot measures opposed six with most seeming to go her way as Thursday. It's looking good for the city, Breed said Wednesday while on a shopping trip in Chinatown to highlight local merchants. What people are saying in this victory is they want San Francisco to work. Early re results reflect the growing power of yimbies and tech in the city and show moderate candidates are appealing to fed up San Franciscans, with the mayor now facing another year in office because of a change in election timing that also passed Tuesday. She'll serve until January 2025. you believe that? January 2025? <laughs> Voters will look for her to address open-air drug use and overdoses, bring down property crime, tackle the housing and homelessness crises, and ensure schools run well. But even with allies and key offices, the mayor faces practical hurdles to delivering results. Clearly, the mayor had a good night, said Corey Cook, a political science professor at St. Mary's College in Moraga. To some extent, this is the easy part. The hard part is governing. Breed still faces the trifecta of addiction, homelessness, and mental illness that contribute to complaints about street conditions, complicated issues with expensive solutions that local officials argue should also come from outside the city, including changes to state law and federal aid. Similar to Jenkins' recalled predecessor, Chase Boudin, Breed and the district attorney have no magic wand to fix crime, but will likely be held responsible for rates despite some forces outside their control, including judges and the economy. Breed must also confront a struggling downtown and mass tech layoffs that pose a long-term threat to the city's budget, meaning spending cuts could be on the horizon. Unquote. I don't believe these issues are endemic to San Francisco. Los Angeles is facing a similar situation. New York elected a uh, tough-on-crime mayor in Eric Adams. I've said before, I feel like we're headed into a 90s tough-on-crime moment. This one won't be defined by gangs and the violence that surrounded an influx of cheap cocaine. The boogeyman is poverty and its visceral effects on the demons. It's not drive-bys and crying mothers of slain children in the evening news. This time it's property crime and people living in an RV in a residential street. What say y'all? Viewing public. What say the Thursday news crew. Let's bring them in, starting with my homie, my dog, my co-host. He is the man of the Mau Mau Hour. He is the Pascal Robert. 
peace and greetings to the chat, peace and greetings to the audience, peace and greetings to Jason Miles. Powerful intro there, my brother. Some heavy uh, words. Th- thank, thank you. Thank you. I'm working on these these intros. Uh, also, coming all the way live from a secret bunker somewhere in central-ish, eastern-ish Texas. He says Austin, but it's really not Austin. Don't believe that. Is it San Marcos? <laughs> is it is it San Antonio? <laughs> Wherever it is, it's not Austin. So don't look for this man in Austin. Please welcome co-host of Left Reckoning, columnist for Jacobin, and someone I feel very comfortable saying is my good friend. Please welcome David Griskin. Thank you so much for that intro. Um, I do want it to be very clear. I don't have an official role in Jacket Magazine. Don't want to get making a basket on my butt. They do pull up pieces from time to time. <laughs> Sometimes he writes it, Jack. <laughs> I'm still, I'm, I couldn't imagine a better group to be chatting about this with tonight. I mean, um, most of the midterm commentary has been pretty boring for folks. So I'm excited to hear what y'all have to say. Well, uh, someone that's going to help us with this commentary is um, also a, a very important part of the show. She is the faceless voice of reason. She is like a sister to Pascal and I. She is the M2 song. Pascal is like, I did not agree to that. <laughs> hello, hello, everyone. Hello, hello to the chat. A very lively chat. Is it a lively chat today? Yeah. We got a regular. You want to hear us drop bombs about the midterms? Uh, I couldn't see because I have a new teleprompter app that was going way too fast. And I was like, I don't know how Amy Goodman does it. Oh, damn. She is an OG. She really is. You see how she ends her shows? Okay, Griscom, you have five seconds to finish and tell us what happened in the midterms. Four, three. Thank you for watching, Democracy. Yes, yeah. yes, sorry. Yeah. Uh, wish, <laughs> wish everybody happy birthday. Oh, before I even pivot to to the questions, I do want to send two huge TIR family member birthdays. First and foremost, uh Jean Bajan's baby daughter just turned a year. I cannot believe it's been a year since V has been born. Oh my goodness. And also, my mom. My mom's birthday passed. Shout out to my mom, who is now officially old enough to get a discounted food at Denny's. (laughs) It's a special birthday when you get that. Uh, I think they start at 55 now, but she just turned 65. We are now officially 20 years apart. She can take the bus for free or for cheap <laughs> Chinese to get a nice little discount <laughs> she's not even a vet she could go tomorrow she is not a vet she's a vet in these streets hey <laughs> hey OG mom this is like the one episode she's watching I'm gonna get a text message like I'm a vet in these streets huh <laughs> yeah deal with it shut up <laughs> nice <laughs> But uh, speaking of me getting yelled at by my mother, 
David Griscom. Can we finally stop acting like Ido has a chance to win anything? Is he really a victim of a generational distrust? Or is Beto and Stacey Abrams just good at publicity and not really good at winning? Man, you know, I'll tell you what. Um, it's been interesting to see the outside interest in the race here, um, you know, during the, this election cycle. Everyone knows now what the final results were that Beto lost. But what's really fascinating is Beto broke fundraising records here for mm. the Democrat. Like, and, um, you know, while Abbott still has a larger war chest, because, like, that's Abbott's favorite thing in the world um, is raising money. And, uh, um, you know, but Beto raised something like $77 um, million, dollars? Mm-hmm, which was, you know, pretty significant. Uh, for this kind of race. But what's really fascinating is when you compare this race, um, 2022 to 2018, uh, where Lupe Valdez is somebody who y'all don't know. Most people don't know. Um, Beto barely outperformed her, like by maybe something like picked up like, uh, you know, 0.5 or 1% of, of the vote. So with all this money, with all this attention, there wasn't that much of a difference uh, when it came down uh, to the final vote total. And like, I think it's very fair um, to look at Beto as a candidate, but I think more importantly is looking towards the Democratic Party strategy, right? That there's a clear ceiling. Beto raised a lot of money, but a lot of the money was out-of-state donations, for example, mm-hmm. um, which I think sort of shows, um, you know, some of the the major hurdles that any kind of statewide Democratic Party um, campaign has. I mean, you know, for people who don't know, uh, Texas used to be a very solidly Democratic state, mm-hmm. and uh, since 1994, uh, Democrat has not won statewide office here. Um, which is, you know, extreme. And it means that the Republican Party has been able to cement power. I talk a lot about this. So, you know, people can maybe check out other videos for a more in-depth version of this. It's a little tedious, but it's important that, like, Abbott has fundamentally changed the position of the governor of Texas. He's used the kind of gray areas of the law. He's used the fact that the GOP um, mm-hmm. is basically his party. He runs it here. Um mm-hmm to be able to increase the power of the, the, the governor of Texas, which compared to other states is a very limited position, like constitutionally. Um, they don't have a cabinet, for example. Um, and the reason for that was because a bunch of Confederates didn't want a centralized government. Um, but, you know, the fact is that the Texas system is not um, meant to have uh, or intended to have like a very, very strong central government system. And Abbott hasn't won that through, um, you know, popular outreach or anything like that he's used that because he's willing to basically push up against the the edges of legality and he has a gop that's that you know is uninterested in basically challenging um him on it it's it's pretty wild though when you look at everything that happened here over the past year or two years right um you have the the horror of uvalde you have the abortion decision from the supreme court and then the ban here can i can i stop you for one second david i hate to interrupt you you're on a roll and i feel like i'm being a doucher but i do want to ask you this from someone that actually lives in state mm-hmm. and i don't know how much time you spent in your state's border towns um what is your take on the way the state feels about Uvalde? I think that I think that people are very upset, uh, particularly about the police response to it. Um, but there's, you know, there's there's two aspects to it, right? There's like the first, I mean, because it's it's unacceptable. The more that you um, you read about what happened there with DPS, it's really unbelievable. Um, 
I mean, you know, and, and somebody just noted there, like Uvalde County, which it's also worth noting that that's not just the town. It's a larger rural county around mm-hmm. there and it's traditionally Republican. Um, but yeah, Abbott won that 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 county by about 20 points. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I think that like where there's a little bit of a disconnect is that there's a lot of frustration about DPS's failures, the police failures, all of that. The fact that there's been very little accountability for those folks. And then, like, what do you do about it? Because I think, like, what a lot of liberals want to do is basically, you know, push very strict gun laws, which is just, it's just not popular here. I'm sorry, folks. Um, it's just, like, that's not going to be a winning issue. And, you know, I think that, like, there is, there's a way to focus on the failures and the situation in Uvalde that wasn't basically, you know, going to come take your guns kind of thing. And, you know, the thing with Beto is that he, va- he like, he vacillated between positions on this, too. Obviously, there's a famous line of him during the Democratic presidential debates where he says, yeah, I'm coming for your guns. And he would say something similar sometimes to certain audiences and then would sort of be more mild towards others, which I don't think helped him. But if I'm going to be honest, I don't think that the, you know, the thing is that like the gun thing, I don't think is what lost it for him necessarily. Um, Mm -hmm. But it also prevented him from basically being able to benefit from, you know, not to be too cynical about it, but to benefit from like the failure there uh, Mm -hmm. politically what it ended up being is it's like there's two main, um, you know, there's a few main issues. Abortion, I think, did um, nationally like motivate a lot of people to come out and vote. I think it all in a lot of people in major cities here coming out to vote. Um, but a lot of people are very cynical about politics here. You know, only 15% of Texans support the abortion ban, right? So again, you think that'd be another thing that Beto would be able to benefit from. But a lot of people, they just don't feel like it's worth their time to vote for Democrat, even if they might disagree with the Republicans. And this is this is really the crux of, of, of the argument here uh, from my perspective, mm-hmm. is that I think the Texas Democrats for a long time thought that, you know, the Republicans will get so bad that eventually everyone's just going to show up for them. Mm-hmm. And like, you have to do more than that. You can't just be like these other guys are monsters. Vote for us. Um you have to give people a reason and, and something to believe and something to fight for to show up for you. And, and they didn't really do that. I mean, this is a national thing, but I, I'm sure you all know this. Like, you know, the main issues that motivated people in exit polls across the country were abortion and inflation. And mm-hmm. I think it's an absolute disaster for the Democratic Party that whenever somebody said they were voting on the economy or on, infl- on inflation, that's coded Republican. Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't think there was enough of an economic message, um, you know, with, with the Beto campaign, like they say things and they put them out in their little press releases and maybe say things to certain crowds, but that wasn't what it was. It was Abbott's failing the state. Uh, Abbott failed during the grid. Abbott failed during Uvalde. Abbott's pushing forward laws that, that we don't like. And again, it's like, I agree. Like, I think Abbott's a bad guy. I think the Republicans are, are, are bad. But when you look at a state that has very low voter turnout, when you look at a state where a lot of people are very disillusioned with politics, both Republican and Democrat, you know, the whole strategy was the line in Texas for a long time is Texas is not a red state. It's a non-voting state. And I think that's very fair mm-hmm. to say in the sense that, like, people don't vote here. Mm-hmm. Um, but the implied second aspect of that argument is that sooner or later, everyone's just going to show up and, and, and vote for the Democrats. And they haven't really figured out a strategy to do that. County level Democratic Party in Texas is very weak. State level really? is like a, is a joke. Um, you know, there's not a lot of presence um, to flip it. And like the Democratic Party is continuing to get stronger and stronger um, in the cities. But Texas is a big ass state and there's not enough representation um, infrastructure on, on, on the on the county level. So it is like. 
I didn't expect Beto to win. Um, I was very pessimistic about it. Like last week I did, you know, a, a stream sort of talking mm-hmm. about it. So I I'm, wasn't necessarily shocked that he lost. But when you think about it with all the things that you would think would maybe open up some opportunity, some pickups, some kind of interesting narratives maybe in the governor's race because of all the dysfunction here um, to find out that with all the money, with all of the attention, with all the momentum on, on their side that they barely outperformed a governor candidate who most people don't even know their name. Um, so it's, 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 it's difficult. I will say that like, you know, there were, there are exciting things. Um, we're sending Greg Kassar, um, mm-hmm. to, to Congress who, you know, is a former, for, former, uh, DSA member. There's a whole, a backstory. Basically he took a very moderate position on Israel, which I totally agree is unacceptable, but just knowing like where his politics are, this is somebody who's very pro worker, uh, very committed to a lot of these other things. Um, that's a positive note. Marijuana decriminalization um, passed in five cities um, across the state, which is huge. Uh, that passed in a lot of places. I saw. I was actually reading the New York Times, you know, following the election, and it looked like marijuana legalization is passing because I think people have seen the writing on the wall that it's just a windfall of cash for for municipalities. I did want to ask you, kind of following up on that Uvalde question, how does a state? That is so married to the idea of gun toting violence and law and order reckon with the fact that law and order failed so miserably. I, I mean, I think I, I don't think that um, what happened to you. I mean, there's a, there's a couple things here. It's like there there are two issues it's like there's the gun question and then there's the question of like the um the the policing right mm-hmm. um because you know th- th- this isn't an illegal firearm that was purchased i mean this is somebody who followed the laws that were on the books mm-hmm. um when it comes to gun laws in texas it's like again open carry which we have here mm-hmm. right um, which by the way, like some of the first, like if, you know, just, this is going back to traditional Texas values kind of thing. It's like, no, man, like the first laws that were passed in Texas were like restricting guns and knives in public places, <laughs> you know, because it was like the wild west and they didn't want people carrying around. There's guns. still so, like, signs on like bars, like, please leave your gun in the car. Totally. Yeah. Because, yeah. And you know, the thing that's fascinating about the gun stuff here is that, you know, the police departments really have lobbied against, um, you know, the open carry in particular because it makes their job harder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that at the end of the day, I don't think that, I think that people not wanting Beto to come into office and basically take a very hard gun stance prevented some people who they might've been able to win from showing up for him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think most people who voted for Abbott voted on inflation. If they're not, if they're like gettable, right. I'm talking about people who aren't just like dyed in the wool Republicans. Um, they voted for him on inflation and on immigration. And, um, you know, on immigration, too, it's just like I think what Abbott is doing is absolutely disgusting. I want a much more humane policy when it comes to immigration. Um, But I think a lot like there was it it was vague from the Democrats about what they wanted to do about um, people coming over the border. Right. Even if the argument is that it's not a threat. Right. And we should go back to a more traditional Texan uh, border, which for a long time. You know, the border was very porous, which meant that people came over when there was work and they left when there wasn't work. Right Mm -hmm. now, it's a hard border. So you come over and you're not leaving um, because it's just too arduous and difficult. Right. 
and and I bring that up just to say that like that when I say that like you know I think that they failed on their immigration messaging. I'm not saying that we need to like mimic the right and be like we're going to be hardliners on the border. Um, but I think there was a kind of like we're just not really going to get into that kind of thing, um, which I don't think is you know that's just not a winning argument. So you know. It's it's tough because, you know, I live here this is where my family is, all the people I love. And it's scary. I mean, the abortion thing is is, is horrific. The 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 in increasing violence here is, is very worrying. And um, while I'm not a Democrat, I don't want to continue living under Greg Abbott rule because he's only getting more and more hardline as his uh, as he continues to win uh, these, you know, effectively like unopposed uh, governor races. Um so it's just like you see a, a strategy from the Democratic Party here. They've 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 failed. Um, they've been losers for literally like what? I was two years old the last time mm -hmm. a Democrat won any kind of state office. So my entire life has been, been this GOP dominance. And it's just really frustrating to see that there's been no real reckoning, no real lessons learned to try to build something because, um, you know, there's been a lot of excuses that the the, the non-voter thing. There's no real strategy for non-voters other than we think Republicans are bad. And then the <laughs> other one is that the demographics is destiny thing, where they thought that as the state's demographics change with new people moving here, which I've always thought was a silly argument, because a lot of people who move here from California and New York City, um, they move here because they want to be under Republican rule. So the idea well, that all of these people are just going to be liberal voters, I think, is wrong. Oh, it's um, totally wrong, because a lot of people don't even change their address. I think people don't understand that about transient uh cities like austin for example that's becoming a lot more transient with mm -hmm. the influx of a, a tech corridor um even in canvassing for shahid in san francisco which is an extremely transient city when it comes to tech mm -hmm. there were so many people you talked to they're like i'm registered where i'm from mm -hmm. you know no, texas totally. deals with the same thing you know people love it the cheap rent and then you know, they ruin a bunch of cool spots and then they go back to California because it's too hot there. <laughs> and, you know, but the other thing, too, is it's just like the demographics thing, like not just talking about new population, but like there's been this argument. That Texas is now majority Latino. So white people are not the largest ethnic group in, in, in Texas. Right. And there's been this kind of idea that's like, oh, once the population, the Latino population continues to grow here, they're going to vote Democrat. And like if you look at the numbers, Latinos do support uh, Democrats at a much higher rate than Republicans. But when you got the numbers that the Republicans already have, it doesn't take much pickup to sort of cement that, you know, for, for the next generation. And the Republicans, while, while the Democrats are sort of, you know, floundering around trying to win more suburban votes. Right. Which that's basically Beto and Biden strategy here. Um, there's a ceiling to that. They're not loyal. And also I would just argue like even in the best case scenario that you win for people with our politics, mm -hmm. you don't want the suburban voters to be the base of a democratic party because, you know, these aren't people who really want high wages for people, housing regulation, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but also like the Republicans have been much more adept at focusing on South Texas. And like, I think it's important not to give people the wrong idea that like, the Republicans are dominating there and they're going to win there for generations or things. But like they're making races competitive in places that they shouldn't be. Um, and there was three big con congressional races in, in South Texas um, that the Republicans were talking big on that they were going to flip. They ended up um, the three big ones. 
the Democrats won two of them and the Republicans won one of them. And that was the district in fairness. So it's very gerrymandered. But again, like, you know, you got to be just picking up seats. You can't be playing a uh, defensive. And the thing that's really frustrating is it's Texas uh, 15. Uh, Monica De La Cruz uh, won that um, election against one of the more like kind of pr not democratic socialist progressive, but progressive in the sense like pro-abortion, not a conservative Democrat kind of character. And like the DCC, uh, the National Democratic Party, mm -hmm. refused to invest in that race while the Republican really? on the national level were bumping it. And we're just like, come on, man. It's like, you know why? Because they get to say, oh, well, you guys shouldn't be putting up these lefty progressive folks, um, you know, in these races. We need more Henry Cuellar's um, and, and, and folks like that to win. I mean, that's, you know, it, it's, it's a self-serving kind of uh, retreat from the Democratic Party. And I think it it's not good. Um, to be able to give them the, the narrative um, that, you know, uh, you know, the Republican Party represents, you know, working class, um, you know, Hispanic voters, voters here. So, I mean, a real disaster basically is, is what the story is here, which has made me feel very alienated when a lot of people have been saying like, oh, well, last night wasn't as bad as uh, we expected. I don't have it up to sh share with y'all, but Myra Flores um Mm -hmm. was one of these Republican candidates mm -hmm. who the Democratic Party did a kind of Pied Piper thing with because um, there was a special election in that district. They let her win it with the kind of hope that like, oh, she's going to show up and everyone knows she's crazy. And, you know, in their defense, she did end up losing it. But I think it's a very dangerous game to play when you remember what the Democratic Party did with Trump um, to start thinking that you can just bring right wingers in and, and, and uh, they won't cause trouble. Uh, Elon Musk. Uh, supported her very uh, passionately um, uh, during during the race, and um, just to show you like the the state of the disaster of the the Texas Democratic Party, Myra Flores tweeted out like one of the funniest tweets in response to her defeat, uh, which was "There's no red wave, and uh, if you didn't vote, you have no right to complain." People didn't show up, basically like blaming the voters, which is very funny. I, I was giggling at that. And then the Texas State Democratic Party put that up as their uh, banner image on their Twitter account. We're just like, this is not the time for y'all to be celebrating when you got smacked up a, all up and down the state and you didn't lose a seat that you should never be competitive in the first place for Republicans. Um, like, that's the mentality here. So it's not looking too good um, for, for them. But I will say, like, trying to be optimistic, like. The um, the progressives are are continuing to to grow in, in in strength, and the real challenge is going to be dealing with um, the association with the Democratic Party, um, which I think is is a big negative, not just with Republicans, but with people who voted for Obama um, and are really disillusioned about politics. So there's momentum, and then there's like big challenges ahead of people who want to do different kind of politics than status quo Texas State Democratic Party politics here. Pascal, what say you about that? I want to ask you a couple of questions there. Do you think there's still a motivating force within the corporate Democratic Party faction to try to neutralize the progressives to their left on a national political level? I mean, I I, I think so. I think that they're they're more worried about them than Republicans in a lot of places, right? I mean, like if you look at last night um, nationally, right, um, the squad, right. If we, if we want to use like a lose, um, you know, term for that, like they picked up four more folks that are going to join that that block in Greg Kassar, in Summerlee, in Pennsylvania, in Illinois, in Florida as well. Right. And 
Um, I think that they do see uh, the progressive movement as a threat. They were blaming the progressives for their messaging when it, and, you know, I, I bring that up just because it's like, you know, you can talk about how many Republicans are trying to like put that idea on other Democratic Party candidates. But when it came down to people who were on the ballot, who were running progressive elections, like they did really well last night. Um, and I think the Democratic Party doesn't really want them um, to, to, you know, have the momentum that they do have. Right. What's interesting to me about the election on Tuesday night was that not only did the Democratic Party not want them to be the face of the party, but if you look at the demographics of the actual voter turnout, mm -hmm. it was it was a youth driven election, which mm -hmm. illustrates why there's going to be a correlation between the voter turnout and the success that progressives had in many of the more liberal progressive districts. So mm -hmm. if if the allegation is that all of this lefty messaging defund the police and all this other stuff is costing Democrats at the ballot box and at the election booth. How is that the case when youth voter turnout is up? And basically, it's the youth voter turnout that helped drive the fact that the Democrats didn't get shellacked when we were expecting massive red wave. I mean, it's we all know this, but like it's it's really ridiculous. Like, you know, I'm not somebody who gets really worked up about trying to demand social show up and vote for the Democratic Party. But like the accusation that across the board, that movement is like not showing up for them. Uh, they're, you know, they're refusing to vote, et cetera, has just been shown to be false. Right. And you can make a radical left critique. Maybe that's a bad thing. But like the argument that the, the Democratic Party makes that it's like all these progressives and Democratic socialist people are, you know, sabotaging the party um, because they want purity. I think I think you're very right. It's like the the youth vote is like saving their ass right now, um, because w without that, I mean, um, I don't think we'd be having the same kind of conversations about the mid midterms on the national level uh, without 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 the youth vote. And like, you know, I think that like where it becomes where it really matters, like Greg Kassar, who won here, had a very very like brutal primary, right? And then, like, it, it's, it's one of those districts that the Republicans give to the Democrats in Texas as, like, a gimme, right? It's super gerrymandered. You know, I think he won, like, 78% of the vote or something like that, right? So um, where this argument starts to become really important, I think, for us as we're, like, trying to grow is that, like, in those safe districts especially, it's like there is no reason then um, to put up, you know, conservative, moderate Democrats, um, you know, if they are safe blue districts or whatever, I think that we should be running, you know, uh, leftists in, in most places, frankly. Um, I don't think we should be cowards about our politics, um, because I think a lot of the reason that I support this stuff is I think it can flip, um, some of those districts, but especially in ones that are, you know, deemed safe. I think the democratic party is worried that those kind of safe districts that they hold, um, will see more and more progressive candidates coming in and winning those elections and pushing back on the people who have run the Democratic Party for, you know, most of our lives. Yeah, that's a very important point. No, and I think that it's it's really going to be a battle that's going to be worth seeing how it plays out. But it's, again, the question also becomes how do we keep that flame of left politics within the Democratic Party, which is a strategy that many people have been questionable about. Alive, we don't have a mainstream large-scale bellwether like a Bernie Sanders that gets people energized about participating in the party. So it becomes a question that we have to ask in terms of how do we maintain this kind of energy base and stop it from just petering out when we don't have someone driving the policy agenda at the top. Mm -hmm. 
And we also don't have a grassroots movement at the bottom either. No. And no. like, I mean, like I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who, you know, you know, I'll admit like, um, you know, I was a little hesitant about supporting Bernie because I was just, you know, when I, when I was like, when Bernie was running the first time, I mean, you know, I was involved in politics a little bit, but it was like being a socialist was like a kind of personal private, you know, little secret mm-hmm. that I held for myself and my friends. Right. It wasn't political in the sense of like active. Right. Um, you know, I showed up to protest and I did things, but like, you know, there wasn't a movement. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was at Occupy. Anyway, um, I say all that to say that, like, you know, I, I think Bernie's done a tremendous amount to, like, mobilize and, and motivate this movement. But, you know, if I am to make, you know, a criticism, it's just like, Lord, it, it would have been so helpful if after 2016 or 2020, Bernie Sanders said, if you support this, join up like an organization like the DSA instead of launching like our revolution, which is just, you know, another pack at the end of the day. Um, and I think that like, we really are in a crisis moment with that. You're seeing the left splinter off into a bunch of different um, groups. And, um, you know, some people become very pessimistic about politics. I think that like the real fight right now is trying to find some kind of structure, some kind of organization, some kind of grassroots movement that can sustain it for the next five to 10 years because I think there is a real um, threat of just like permanent fracturing, you know, some people into the more radical revolutionary left, some people into the more like Warren style progressive side of politics um, that I think would be really damaging when so many people have come together. We have a super chat here that I'd I'd love for you to address really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, Infinite content says here is the dilemma. The DNC has, they want the vote, but they don't want to, their power with the that's not going to work can you say that again because you were, you were clipping can you say it, say it again okay uh here's the dilemma what's going on over there nothing there's so much moving okay stationary <laughs> i'm trying to make sure the microphone is all clear are you chasing children or something what's going on i <laughs> not your children um you sound like it. Sit your ass. <laughs> sounds like you made one of them black mom face. Actually, that's a mom face. I've seen everybody make. Here is the dilemma the DNC has. They want the youth vote. They don't want to share power with the youth. That's not going to work. The, 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 Democratic I, I totally, Party, the Democratic Party is like is a party about democracy management, right? If you want to make the argument about the Republicans that they want to suppress the vote, the Democratic Party wants to manage voters. Um, I think there's no better examples than that than like New York State. Mm. It's very hard to vote there. It's, you know, in a lot of places, the Democratic primary is like where you vote and they make it very damn hard uh, to Mm. do that. So, yeah, they're, yeah, they, they want to, you know, you know, at the end of the day for some people to show up for them. But yeah, they, there's no real interest. I mean, the Democrat, I can't speak with like real experience, you know, in places like New York, what it's like to go to like meetings there. Um, I don't go to democratic party meetings here, but from what I've heard from friends, it's like absolute nightmare um, to try to get involved even in the Texas state party because they don't like newcomers at all. Right. Because they have their comfy oh, positions and no. their little zones, even if they're just losers, uh, they don't want, you know, even if it might be beneficial to them. Um, but yeah, um, Waz is here. Yeah, shout out to uh, mm-hmm. Big Waz. 
I do want to. I, I want to address this, uh, and it's not an issue with with Waz. We actually had a very fun Saturday show where we discussed a popular topic. I don't want to say, um, but YouTube is not letting us monetize that show. Sorry. It said after a manual review, and all I was thinking was like, "What did we say in that show that was so bad that they were like, no, it's too real? You guys <laughs> exposed the truth." Maybe they were Israelites uh, at YouTube. So that's what it is, and this is my. I'm saying it right now. Listen to me now. There is black Israelites in YouTube, and they are against <laughs> this revolution. Support this is revolution by being a subscriber, and stop the reign of the fascist black Hebrew Israelites that are stopping shows like this from being able to make seventy-five cents. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Dude, what's going on in Florida with DeSantis? Are the Haitians showing up for him? I <laughs> I mean, this Watch is the question. Let me read this. <laughs> yeah, read it. Read two Let me read, read this real quick. This read is it. from Wani Lombre. Uh, Pascal, please, for the love of God, tell those Haitians in Dade County to stop with the DeSantis love. Please. I don't think so much is the DeSantis love from the Haitian community because we had Haitians who ran for municipal elections in Dade County. For example, Marlene Bastien, who actually won. So Miami-Dade County is a pretty heavily Haitian Democratic constituency. I think that you're talking about Haitians maybe in other parties, in other parts of like Palm Beach County, which DeSantis won as well, or further to the north in Broward. But Miami-Dade County, the Haitians pretty much are pretty dedicated to the Democratic Party. Not that I'm saying I'm a Democrat, but that seems to be the case. So I wouldn't necessarily blame them for the DeSantis win. Um, I, I guess it's my turn to pivot to my area. I mean... I'm going to have to echo with uh, what David had to say here in terms of the rather uh, bleak turnout for Florida. You all saw what happened in Florida. Florida goes red hard for Ron DeSantis and Val Demings, who spent millions of dollars in that election to beat Marco Rubio. She got crushed in minutes. Mm. The election results came out and she got she went nowhere. And the, what's more important to me is that what is one piece of good news that comes out of Florida, and I think we should celebrate, you know, no easy victories, uh, is that we have a 25-year-old Florida Democrat secures Generation Z's first house seat. Maxwell Alejandro Frost focused on issues important to many young voters, gun violence, climate change, abortion rights, and Medicare for all. Maxwell Alejandro Frost, a 25-year-old Democrat, won his election on Tuesday in Florida's 10th district over Calvin Wimbush, a Republican, according to the Associated Press. Mr. Frost will represent the Orlando area seat being vacated by Representative Val Demings. So what's interesting is that Val Demings, because she was running for Senate, had to evacuate her seat, but she had a progressive to her left, hopefully a DSA member, I think he is, if I'm not mistaken, take his take her position in the House. So that's a bit of a shot to the Congressional Black Caucus, and it's also one win for the progressive as well. But I think overall, the story that comes out of the state of Florida is that Ron DeSantis, who beats Charlie Crist by at least 15, vote, 15 points, 
is now secured his position as a major contender for the uh, presidential election in 2024 because he has, you know, the wind at his sails. He's a big time, big time popular. He's the most popular governor in the United States right now. Very right wing, very reactionary. He can't, his closing speech stated that he was saying that, quote unquote, Florida is the state that woke comes to die. Damn. Yeah. This Damn. Is yeah. Where woke comes to die? Yes. Huh. Huh. <laughs> um, interesting. Can, can I ask you all about, the like, on DeSantis, have you all experienced the DeSantis bros yet? <laughs> Where the bros? fuck did you experience that? <laughs> so, I mean, on, like, online thing, like, I don't, like, this is anecdotal, so I don't know what this says about maybe his presidential ambitions, but, man... Anytime Matt and I have done anything mentioning Ron DeSantis mm-hmm. on uh, on YouTube, mm-hmm. it's just comments, what? bot comments of people just being you know, like really psycho uh, pro DeSantis, which is like I think that it's outstated, like the role of like online right wing freaks, um, you know, <laughs> boosting Trump in 2016. But it has been interesting to see all these folks giving themselves a new great white hope. In uh, Ronda Ronda Sanctimonious um, over the past couple months, uh, Waz says they banned cocoa butter in Florida, so he ain't never going. <laughs> <laughs> Just ashy niggas running around Florida, ashy ass Haitians, <laughs> ashy ass Haitians and Dominicans. <laughs> For the love of God, why? <laughs> Uh, someone sent a super chat uh, twice, and no, no one on the screen can answer that. And I think I'm probably the only one qualified to even try to answer that. Is that none of us have seen Black Panther two? <laughs> is it Welcome to Wakanda or Wakanda Forever or you know Now the Hoes is fighting whatever the hell they call it part two? But uh, none of us. That's have our seen buddy it. down in Australia. Come on, man. The super, superhero chat is just not going to happen on these programs. I know you keep trying to make it happen, but it's not what we do. I, I, I will be honest and say this. I've seen Black Panther multiple times. Um, I do watch superhero movies because I am a nerd in 45, and this is my era. And seeing the cartoons that I grew up on in movie form you know, makes me very excited. But I haven't seen uh, Black Panther 2. It's too much for me to take because I actually really did like Chadwick Boseman. <laughs> like, I don't want to cry. Aww. Did you hear I everybody's cried. getting to stop again to go watch uh, Black Panther 2? But they're we all getting get dressed, dressed up. up. We should get dressed up. They're like wearing white. Way. They're wearing white. <laughs> Everyone is wearing white. We should, we should. We should all go in New York. When we go, oh when we go to New York, we should all go, but as NWA. But only me, you, and Pascal, not Matt and David. That's not good. <laughs> Jesus. This is why the left loses. <laughs> you just lost the yeah, left. Divisions. Let me do it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine if we should? <laughs> and Pascal was dressed like Biggie. Oh, 
that that look. If you guys want to go see Black Panther two, do that shit and dress. Well, you know, now that I said that, all these white people are gonna dress like Easy. <laughs> He said I could. <laughs> Black guy said I could. I'm, I'm, uh, I do want to say this real quick, and then no, I won't say. I'll save it for the champagne room. I will just say funny. Paul Prescott's in the chat too. Uh, Motherfucking Paul. I want, I want to get some general question conversations about the election, not just about Florida overall. But what's up with the Pennsylvania? I love to hear what Paul Prescott had to say. Fetterman, man. Fetterman coming through in the clutch. With a hoodie. With a fucking hoodie. And and uh, losing a debate. I mean, I think that, you know, you have to ask yourself the question that if he hadn't gone through those struggles, I mean, we might have even seen like huge margins probably um, in, in his favor. I mean, I think Fetterman Fetterman is is excellent. You know, I think it's worth noting like He's not necessarily a democratic socialist or anything like that, but boy, like that's somebody who is like a very organic kind of left wing pro worker candidate yeah. that I want to see a lot more of. Like people sometimes get worked up about his like fracking answers where he says like he's not wanting to ban fracking outright. But if you listen to what he says there, he says we have to come up with a you know solution for all the people who work in those industries. And it's like, boy, I would much rather have somebody who's like thinking about what a green transition looks like for working people. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. Like we got to get rid of fracking, um, et cetera. But like, you know, there are some people on the left and like in the green movement who will just say to, you know, people who work in the fossil fuel industry, two middle fingers, learn to code. And I think that's a disastrous <laughs> strategy for winning and also humanitarian level. It's like, that's horrible kind of strategy too. So it's like, I like, I like where Fetterman's heads at, even on, even in things where like I disagree with him like that. He's a big uh, simp for Israel, though, which is a little bit of a bummer. Um, but um, we could give simp. him a little bit of a pass for now. Who knows? Maybe he'll uh, you just maybe lost he's a tactical decision. <laughs> Telling people to Israel? go learn to code that is very passage, you know, very, you know, <laughs> early 2000s, 2010s. So what do you tell people to do? Um, we need to support no, the Green kidding. Deal. Oh, but like, what do you, that's what you say when you're like, oh, we're going to, you're going to lose all these jobs in this industry. What's the answer? They don't say learn how to code. What do they say? I don't know what they say. Green New Deal. I need, you know what I hear people say now? You know what the hot thing is that I've seen? Because I what? actually do get all this right wing shit from all the goddamn video intros I made. Uh, is uh, go to work. There's all these jobs. There's too many jobs. Yeah. There's more jobs than people. Just go to work. And yeah, so, we all know how great. So from Andrew people that I know. <laughs> Since I actually do talk to to people not on the internet, um, <laughs> one of the things that I've found is that when you're looking for a job, um, they want full availability. So even if it's a part time oh, yes. job, they're like, so so even if let's say you do something on the weekends, like you have a job, you have a kid, whatever the fuck it is, you have something that you do on the weekends, but you need some extra money to supplement that. A lot of places like we need all that availability. We need those Saturdays free. And you're like, well, I work somewhere Saturday. Well, we can't hire you. It's like, bitch, it's Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. No. Um, well, even if you have hours, you're on call. They want you to be as close yeah. to on call as possible. Yeah. 
that I mean, that's like that's a big part of the Starbucks unionization effort, too, is that like those are supposed to be jobs that respected like your college curriculum or something like that. You know, that's how they pitch it. Now they're just like, no, we're going to schedule it all the way through. But we'll just say really quick. I mean, like the answer to, you know, people working those industries, just for anyone listening who hasn't heard my pitch on this, like it is a Green New Deal and, and specifically just transition. I mean, like, you know, I think a lot of people for a long time have said, like, climate change is a problem. We have to do something. But we haven't spent any time thinking about what it is that we're actually going to do. People are talking about changing the way that like the electricity comes to your household. You cook your food, you keep the lights on. Like this is important shit. And I'm sorry, I would much rather have people who have been spending their lives producing electricity on a professional level running and, 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 and not, so not just like, Oh, we're going to give people some stipends for a short period of time, but saying y'all have expertise, right? Um, and we want to utilize that. So you want that potentially in solar, I think an even better transition system is something like nuclear power, um, which, you know, doesn't have the same problems with intermittency and also is something where a lot of those skills um, that people have in extractive industries, like there, there are similar jobs. That it's a quick training program to get people into, in, into doing that work. So, like, the point is not just to say that, like, you know, fuck you, figure shit out. It's actually like. No, um, you know, we need people like you who have been doing this critical work to make sure that the system functions and we can do it. I don't know. Like, I know this is like my hobby horse, y'all, so I won't go on too long, but like <laughs> it pisses me off that like, you know, um, people make this kind of false equivalence between like working people's dignity and like ability to feed their families and like a transition off of fossil fuels. Right. When it's, you don't have to make that choice. Like there is a program that will work. Um, to de decarbonize our economy that also produces good results for working people. And, you know, people have gotten really pessimistic and nasty, um, you know, who, who basically want people's standards of living to decline. I mean, that's like the degrowth movement. And it's very frustrating because it's like um, it's it's a false choice that is a really nasty thing. It's a, it's a false choice in the sense that, like, we don't have to do that. Um, I also don't think that the kind of nasty version is even politically viable. And we also have this one that's very, very attractive, which is like, let's give people good wages. Let's give people um, the ability to continue doing critical work in our society. And, uh, you know, I think that a lot of people on the green movement and in the green left in particular have been really t terrible on that. And uh, I'm, I've been encouraged to see folks shifting on it. But, um, is it. But isn't there some kind of complications when we say this? Because there's different sides to this green movement. And we definitely saw some of those sides in uh, a documentary that was, I think, produced by Michael Moore. But I don't know yeah, how much Planet he had to do Planet of the Humans, which yeah. really shits on um, the environmental movement as a whole, um, especially Bill McKibben. And... I think we're both friends with Joshua Con Russell. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I was in the Bay Area, you know, I knew Josh. We'd hang him. So. And he had some, you know, opinions of that film as well. He felt it didn't tell the whole story. Um, you know, nuclear energy. I just watched an a interesting documentary about a movie called Stalker. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. It's an old Russian film from the 70s. Um, that's about a nuclear power plant, a kind of a dystopian future. But, um, you know, there's definitely some issues with the fallout of nuclear power, right? Like those things have to be built right. If not, we get Three Mile Island, 
Chernobyl. It's still, I mean, when it comes down to it, though, it's it's still the the safest way to produce energy. Like it's not even close when you look at like deaths um, mm-hmm. per kilowatt produced. It's just like there is not a power system um, that that doesn't come with you know certain amounts of risks. And nuclear is on the very very low side. I think you know one of the things that's tough about it is that it's it's complicated and scary. We don't think about um, these kind of systems and. I think there's very fair criticism to make that the the nuclear movement, for example, hasn't been able to present, um, you know, the science and the facts to people. So I get that there's a lot of worries about it. I was very anti-nuclear power for a long time until I started learning about what those systems look like. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, if if we don't take this this question seriously um, about what a transition is going to look like. Um, we could get ourselves into, I mean, like, look, for example, what's happening in, in Europe, right? You've seen all of these, uh, you know, environmentalist movements like shut down nuclear plants. And, you know, in the past five years, the amount of carbon that has been released in Europe because of the shutdown of all these nuclear plants in, in, in Germany in particular mm-hmm. is equivalent um, to what is produced in uh, half of Africa. The continent of Africa, right? That's just now being, you know, carbon that is being released into the uh, the atmosphere um, because people are running away from nuclear power. Um, I think that, like, when you look at modern societies, um, societies that have decarbonized the most, it was those societies that started utilizing more nuclear power in the 70s and 80s, right? Like, they're like, if you're worried about the environment, there is a technology here um, that. Um, is there the reason that you don't see more nuclear, by the way, folks, is not because um, it's dangerous or scary. Like, you think capitalists give a shit about that? It's because it doesn't have the same kind of profit opportunity as other systems do, particularly because the upfront investment in nuclear is very high, right? Very so high. Private, so private investors are, like, are worried about investing in that. And it's just like... Um, well, that's that's fine. That's an even better argument for what we should be doing, which is having state investment running these systems like we do, for example, with like the Tennessee Valley Authority. Um, you know, but are we at a moment, though? And this is this is a question to you. And I know, you know, it's getting late and, and uh, you have things to do and you need to move on. But in closing, I want to ask this question to, to everybody as well. Are we in a moment where the federal system can look to to build that level of infrastructure. I mean, it seems too caught up in paying for foreign wars than it is for paying for to seriously try to pay for that level of infrastructure. Because, look, David, I'm not trying to say you're wrong because I don't know enough about nuclear power. I know very little. And I'm not going to say I'm not trying to say you're wrong. I'm just posing my mm-hmm. novice question. I mean, I think it's the it's the, the point is we have a fight in front of us because we have, you know, serious climate destruction on the horizon. Right. And there are two paths in front of us when it comes. I mean, there's a few paths, but like the two very probable ones are, um, you know, a real movement that actually decarbonizes um, our society. And that's going to need state investment to do it properly. Or um, we do a kind of ad hoc um, neoliberal individualist one, which is the direction that, that we're going, right? Um, and that is going to be a system that is going to have very serious um, crises of intermittency, right? Because, uh, you know, 
solar and wind, when the sun's not shining and the wind's not blowing, you do create these crises. And people talk about batteries, but the battery systems are not as functional as a lot of people believe them to be. Um, you know, so we do have this very real crisis where it's like if we don't want to utilize um, fossil fuel, um, we're going to have to come up with something that has a very, very large capacity to be able to produce electricity. I think what we're seeing more likely than not, though, is um, Macron stuff, wage war on working people, increase yeah. the, the cost on people for basic things like energy. And we should be very worried about that on our side. I, I, I'm not somebody who's going to sit here and say that what's in front of us is easy. But I think if we know what we need to do, um, this is the moment that we have to be fighting for it instead of just um, sort of saying, OK, well, we're just going to let capital um, decide the future of not just our lives, but like the future of, of the planet. Because um, there are people who are they love, particularly Europeans, like they love to be able to say, we're going to do neoliberalism, but instead of calling it neoliberalism, we're going to call it environmentalism. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they're they're very ready to do that for folks. And I think people should be very uh, cautious about uh, what's coming with that. Well, David, thank you for hanging out with us today. And I will second the comments in the chat that your hair is fabulous. Before we went on air, we were calling David uh, second coming. That's very yeah. Jesus-esque. I'm feeling uh, Can I just Pascal say? Pascal Robert. Thank you. Can I just say there are things that I disagree with you about all this, David. I am I am foremost expert in Simpsons and nuclear power plant that Homer Simpson worked at. I will concede that the waste minute is not what it used to be. You you won't see too many three fish, but it is concern. The waste is concern the, the waste is the, the least of your concerns i will just say i know we're, we're wrapping up but i'm just gonna tell you right now i can i'll send you some stuff after like the waste is is stuff that takes a long time to degrade stuff, stuff that has a long half-life is like the least threatening thing like you we interact with radiation on a regular basis if you drink a cup of milk in the morning you get uh there, there's radiation in that what's worrying is stuff that has a very fast half-life things that degrade really quickly because that means that you're going to get a stronger dose of, of of radiation um there have been the the people get very worried about about the waste but like one if you looked at all of the waste in the united states for example since we've had nuclear power it would if you were to put it in like a this is not even what it looks like but if you were to just sort of set it up it would be a football field about 10 feet high Right. So like if you think about the space, it's different from what a lot of people think. And really, like, that's not the stuff I'd be worried about. What you would be worried about is more things that are like directly in, in the core or anything like that. And there's I, I know that we're not jumping into the whole thing here, but I'm telling you, mm -hmm. the 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 waste management on the other side is like, again, like I was very worried about the system for a long time. And then I started to learn more and more about it. Um, and, and I was very, very surprised. Um, to find out that particularly waste, which is, I think, something that people cite a lot, is is less of a threat than I think people think that it is. Um, potentially, I, too, that all that stuff can be recycled um, and, like, reutilized so you can use that that waste again to produce energy. But anyway, sounds like this is a, a conversation we should do sometime in the near future. But um, uh, JB, slash fight. If, you, if you've ever found your community was the site of a waste dump, uh, was it? 
What does he say? If you've ever found out your community was on a list for radioactive waste dump, you sober up real quick. Thank you so much, JB, for that super chat. That's huge. That will uh, make up the loss that we got from Waz. I mean, if you, if you look at it, the, the issues with waste have not been what people think that they are. There are things to be worried about, but the way, like the effect on communities about waste has not been um, what I think a lot of people think is, look, these are scary systems. They People don't understand what radiation does. But like waste is something that you should be very comfortable having. Um, it is it is not a big threat to you and, and your community. I, I understand people's questions about politics and, you know, things like that. Like, do you want it? Should you have the ability to make those decisions? That's very fair. Um, but scientifically, health wise, telling you, you can sleep very easy. Look, I saw what it did to share. That's so good. Cool. What do you think about that, Jason? What do you say? This could be worth a show. I think it is worth a show. And I think it's we. Cause... Go ahead. <laughs> It's definitely the conversation. It's probably worth a street fight. I'm just saying now, <laughs> even with the good hair, we might be fighting. <laughs> that might be the Look, that happens. Without, now we got we have a movie for movie night now. We could all watch Silkwood. <laughs> there you have you know? Have you seen Silkwood, Pascal? Years ago, man. I don't even remember it. A teacher made me watch. And y'all should also like, sorry, just really quick, because I saw Paul said this. If you want to have somebody who's much more learned about this stuff than me, y'all should have Lee Phillips on the program uh, to talk about. Oh, man. Lee Phillips <laughs> has been showing up in my Facebook people I should know. And that made me feel like I was. He's a good dude. He can definitely break down yeah. a lot of the stuff better than me. Not, not that I wouldn't be happy to do it, but uh, he's definitely the guy to talk to. Well, I, maybe I should friend Lee Phillips on Facebook since he keeps showing up and people I should know. Oh, yeah. You maybe should. You should. Him on the show. That's a good dude. That's how I know I'm a success in this industry when people that you see on, like when Aaron Mate showed up and people I should know, I was like, haha. Oh, I thought Facebook was trying to get me beef when I saw him. I was like, I'll suggest this <laughs> and do that. <laughs> I was just trying to wrap my set. <laughs> But you and Lee Phillips can talk about plaid shirts together. It'll be great. He has an. Oh, Lee Phillips, <laughs> Lee Phillips likes the plaid? He sure does. He does. He's Canadian. No shit. From real Canada, Canada or Vancouver? I think it's no, real I think Canada. He's, he's real Canada. Yeah. yeah. Where, where they sound like kids from Degrassi High? I don't know well, on that note, let's not fuck with Lee Phillips where he won't take my friend request. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you, A, making fun of me, A. <laughs> What's it on the boot? He's going to fucking jump me. That's all I need. Bunch of maple syrup eating motherfuckers trying to mess with me. Well, whoever raided the show on Twitch, unfortunately, we can't see the, the Twitch raids on the program that we use. Thank you very much. Thank you all for watching. If you haven't done it already, uh, patreon.com slash bitterlakepresents. Uh, we're going to go in the champagne room where we'll be taking your calls. We want to hear what you have to say about election night. Uh, David Griscom, thank you so much for, for uh, blessing us with your wonderfulness and your hair. Please say uh, hello to your, your uh, finance for me. I sure will. 
Um, thanks so much, y'all. I'm uh, looking forward to doing this again soon and hanging out with me sometime in person in the future. All right. Yes, I can't wait to talk about that. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> Something might be cooking, y'all. Ranch uh, water. Ranch. But I might need to go get what I've been cooking. So uh, I will uh, talk to y'all later. Yeah, and the whole gang's going to be there, too, when we do that thing that we can't talk about. Hell yeah. I'm cool. stoked for that. All right. So thank you, David, Pascal, MT. I will see you and everyone else on the other side in the champagne room. And we are, did Paul, wait a minute. Paul, did you just say bring Drake in and talk about nuclear? <laughs> Is that your light skin? Paul Prescott has a light-skinned alliance. I just want you guys to know that Paul is part of the light-skinned alliance. Transnational light Transnational light-skinned alliance. Paul Prescott is the head. It's Paul, Drake, and Sean King. <laughs> and sometimes Derek Varn. Light-skinned alliance. Alright, we are out. I think we are. We should be. We should be out.